Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Robbie, one of the preaching pastors here. It's so good to be with you this morning. If you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to John chapter 18. We are continuing our studies in the Gospel of John, this Easter series, and this morning we come to verse 15. So we'll be in John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our key truth this morning, what I'm hoping we learn from these verses, is simply this. By speaking openly to the world... Jesus bears witness to the truth that the way of salvation is not a hidden secret. By speaking openly to the world, Jesus bears witness to the truth that the way of salvation is not a hidden secret. Now, it's very important for us to remember that John, as a disciple and a gospel writer, along with all the other apostles and the gospel writers, were not only historians— now, they were historians in an important respect. We can trust what they have written. They wrote these things so that we would know historical events. We would know Jesus and what he has done. But they are not historians only because they are concerned not just with telling us historical events. They are concerned that we know the significance of those events. They are concerned that we understand the significance of what is going on here and the things that they relate. And so that is why John weaves this narrative expertly, like an artist or an expert craftsman, to highlight the unabashed, the unhidden witness of Jesus in the way that it contrasts with the false denial of Peter. You see, unlike the other gospel writers who usually tell Peter's denial very straightforwardly, one after the other, deny him first, deny him second, deny him third, and then the rooster crows. Here in John's gospel, we see that first we have the initial denial that Peter gives, followed right after that by Jesus' open witness to the truth. 
his firm conviction in the face of this manifestly unjust trial. And then we go back to Peter and his once again denial of Jesus two more times. Well, that's, that's significant to us. There's a question I think that that raises for us, or a series of questions. And that is, what stood out to you the first time you heard the gospel? And, and what continued to draw you in? And also, what did you find difficult about it? And as you ponder those questions, let me tell you once again, I've told this story multiple times, and I'm, I'm worried slightly that you may be growing tedious of it, but I just can't help it, because I really love the way that an Indian brother from many years ago called Sadhu Sandar Singh testified to who Jesus was for him. He was a, a brother who had been uh, a Hindu for many years, but converted to Christianity, and after he had been a Christian for a long while and was a missionary in India, even to this day, he's still considered one of the fathers of the church in India. A Hindu man came to him and said, well, Sadhu, what did you find in Christianity that you didn't have in Hinduism? What's the better thing that you found? And Sadhu Sundar Singh said, the better thing I have found is Jesus Christ. Well, he said, yeah, 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 I, I knew you were going to say that. But, but really what I'm asking is, what's the better doctrine you found? You know, the way to get by in this life. What's the better principle for life that you found that you didn't have in Hinduism that you found in Christianity? And Sadhu Sundar Singh said, the better doctrine I have found is Jesus Christ. It, we can maybe hear that and think, well, is that just too cute by half? I mean, are, is that just some saccharine sentimentality You know, that because we really refuse to face the real issues in the world? But no, that is the gospel. That's the heart and the soul of the gospel. In this, this, in this room this morning, there are some of us who are feeling very confident in our understanding of the gospel. But are we confident that the better thing that we have found is Jesus Christ? Now, others of us, we may be feeling not so confident in our understanding of the gospel. We may be in our minds going to all the ways in which we have failed. The story of Peter right here may be very emotionally resonant. But are we sure that the thing that we are looking for, the hope and the forgiveness that we are running to, is none other than Jesus Christ? I mean, after all, all the things, when you think back to the things that stood out to you when you first heard the gospel the things that continue to draw you in, and the things that you wrestled with. As you've gone along, haven't you noticed that back behind all of them stands Jesus Christ? Perhaps when we first heard the gospel, we were drawn to it because we heard the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps we saw the community of Christians that we could be invited into. Perhaps we saw their love. But back behind all of that, haven't you begun to see Jesus himself? And oh sure, there are lots of things that we wrestled with, lots of things that were difficult about the gospel for us, and many of those we continue to wrestle with. How could a loving God send people to hell? How could he judge people? How is it that Jesus is fully God and fully man? How do we square that seemingly circle? Lots of things we continue to wrestle with. Why is the church so divided? Why are Christians sometimes so mean? But back behind all of our struggles, haven't we realized, haven't we come to see that we are really wrestling with Jesus Christ? We're trying to figure him out. We're trying to see how does his message, his personality come and impact my life and change it? How do I walk with him? The world rings with the question that that fellow posed to Sadhu Sundar saying, what is the better thing that you have found? You know, King David, many, many years ago, he noticed it too. And he sang about it in Psalm 4. He said, there are many in the world today who are saying, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? 
And what was David's response? What, what was the song of Israel, so to speak, as they took, a part in, took part in their mission to witness to the glory of God? Lift up, your light, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. That was the mission statement of God's ancient people when they remembered their calling to be an outpost of light in a dark world, a witness to salvation. That salvation is not hidden. It comes when God lifts up the light of his countenance and comes to bless his people. Oh, but how quickly they forgot and how quickly we forgot. And so from that ancient song, that ancient hopeful expectation, we come to the pessimistic uncertainty of the songs of our day. Here's one representative example from the band Keen, British pop rock band. See if you hear in these lyrics something that you don't feel is representative of the way that our culture often thinks about things. In a song called Tear Up This Town, which is actually part, or, or part of the soundtrack that they co contributed to, to a movie called A Monster Calls, which is about a young man and his struggles with suffering and how to come to grips with it. But the song goes like this. I want to hand you my heart and let you carry the load. But nobody ever tells you anything you need to know. I need a friend, but a friend is so hard to find. I need an answer, but I'm always one step behind. And then the refrain, this fire will burn. I'm digging for a truth that just can't be found. And it comes to this pessimistic conclusion, I don't want your lessons in love. I don't want your lessons in love. I want to tear it all up. Well, friends, that may seem harsh, but I think often the secret. Well, here's the biblical answer. Here's the answer of our text. God has to show up. God has to reveal himself. The only way for salvation not to be a secret is that God himself has to testify to it. And the astonishing thing of our text is that Jesus says this is exactly what he has done by his own testimony. Jesus' open witness to the truth is it's not merely a compelling reason for us to admire him, although certainly it is that. But more deeply than this, it challenges us to respond to him in faith. Because unless we see the truth in him and him alone, it will still always be a secret. We'll be singing with Keen. The truth is always one step behind. And so for, in order for us to grow and to deepen our faith, Jesus invites us to wrestle with him, to ponder him, even sometimes to humbly question him. I mean, that's really the truly shocking thing about the Bible that we often, I think, take for granted. God invites us to know him more deeply by entering into a real conversation with him through his word as finally and perfectly revealed through Jesus Christ. And that doesn't remove mystery. It doesn't. Sometimes I, th I think we... We feel that it should, right? But oftentimes, haven't you noticed that the, the deepest and most profound things in life resist easy categorization? How do you make a friend? I could tell you how to have your manners, but I can't tell you how to make a friend. How do you raise the children? We know how to make kids, but how do you raise them? How do you worship? <laughs> I knew that was going <laughs> to How do you worship? You know, one of the things we struggle with is that oftentimes, we, you know, we, we, we look at our Bibles and we think, God, why didn't you give more instructions about how we're to worship you? It's not so easy as that. Many of the most important things in life resist easy categorization. So how are we going to know? Well, we have to look to Jesus and Jesus alone. So the word invites us to wrestle with it, but it also requires us to come to a humble posture if we're to learn and to grow. So that's why I think Kevin Van Hooser in this quote is helpful. He says that John's aim 
is to make the readers of his gospel disciples. And that is perhaps the deepest irony of the fourth gospel. Ostensibly an account of Jesus' trial, the narrative ends up trying the reader. Well, let's see this more particularly in the text. Now, beginning in verse 15, the identity of the other disciple here is probably John. Now, some people question this. They think, well, how could a poor fisherman like John be possibly familiar with the high priest's family and invited into his courtyard? Well, maybe that seems odd to you, but in fact, John was probably somebody who supplied the high priest and his family with fish. He probably even came from a priestly family of some description himself. So it's not so odd that he would have known these folks, at least to some degree. And so he's invited in. He's known to these folks. And you will notice that John tells the story, as I said, of Peter's denial first by contrasting it with Jesus' firm witness to the truth. So he goes to the door after Peter's denied entrance, and he speaks to the servant girl, and she lets him in. And immediately we jump into Peter's denial. Peter denies that he's a disciple. It's astonishing how quickly his resolve for Jesus has faded. Now, we shouldn't gloss over this too quickly. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Peter's just cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And that would have been a scene that would have been traumatizing, probably. There were probably a hundred soldiers in that crowd with weapons and torches and a dark garden. And then Jesus has that that statement, let these men go, and this is to fill the word that he had spoken, that those whom his father had given him, of those, not one would be lost. So they scatter. But Peter, still seeming to have at least some faith, still seeming to be willing to walk with Jesus in some way, despite the scary circumstances that he was in, follows closely behind, but he's still hesitant. And then he comes into the courtyard, and there's all these people surrounding him. The events must have been moving at a breakneck pace. How do you keep up? There's John, he has some familiarity, but Peter doesn't know these people. And then there's this servant girl right there. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Many of us would have folded just like Peter folds here. No, I'm not. Probably without even really thinking. But oh, how quickly, from that confident declaration, I will never deny you. I'll draw my sword, Jesus, if it takes that, to I'm not one of his disciples. I'm not one of his disciples. Peter's denial here is the first of three that he will make before the night is over. And it's interesting because his I am not statements, I am not his disciple, contrasts sharply with Jesus' three I am statements that he'd earlier spoken in the garden. Remember last week we saw that one of the ways that Jesus speaks is just a witness to his majesty, a witness to his authority. I am the one that you are speaking. But Peter Peter says, I I am not. So Jesus' steadfastness stands out more brightly in the middle of Peter's failure. And that is really the gospel in miniature. Because Jesus is faithful, Peter's denial will not ultimately be final. But if we're going to see that, the thing that must stand out to us above all is the faithful and the open witness of Jesus. Now, the high priest questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and that's significant. The world has been questioning and interested in both from the very beginning. What do Christians believe, and what are Christians like? These are two questions that always go together. It is not enough for us to be well-versed in theology. It is not enough to know the facts of the Bible well. If the truth is not working itself out in our lives, well, we don't know it. 
And if we know the truth, it will reveal itself sooner or later in our love for God and our love for one another. Jesus answers the high priest by pointing out that he has spoken openly to the world. That's the astonishing thing about Jesus' display of confidence, especially his emphatic use of the first person, I. He says, I have spoken. I have always taught. I have said. Ask those who heard me what I said. They know what I said. Jesus' witness here is astounding in its confidence. And Jesus points back to the fact that his teaching has been open, it's been frank, it's publicly available, it's confident, and it's been free. He has said nothing in secret. His teaching is not for a select group of elite initiates. It's not for the especially strong or smart. He has spoken publicly to everyone. He has sought out even the places of highest traffic in the synagogues and the temple, and he has kept nothing hidden. Friends, do we avail ourselves of the open teaching of Jesus? Jesus is still speaking openly to us in his word, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Or are we sometimes tempted to believe that we need something else to fully understand salvation and the way to live to the glory of God? How quick we are to disbelieve that Jesus has revealed the truth. Sometimes we're quick to disbelieve because of our own confusion and the fact that the better part of wisdom is frequently just acknowledging that we're not as wise as we sometimes think we are and that there are many things, important things even, that we don't know. But we're slow to do that. Sometimes we're confused because we come to the grips or we come to realize that the better part of theology is realizing that it doesn't remove all mystery from life. And sometimes, in fact, maybe more often than not, it increases mystery in the world. Not that we go around always confused, not that we are uncertain of the things that the Lord has revealed, but there are lots of things when we come to walk with Jesus that just are unexpected and are hard to explain. Sometimes we're tempted to disbelieve that Jesus has revealed the truth because we want to be more confident in the way that we proclaim the truth. We want our neighbors to believe. We want people to come in and taste and to see that the Lord is good. Sometimes we feel that we can't do it very well. And sometimes we really question, is pointing people to Jesus really enough? Can I really say with Sadhu Sundar Singh, the better thing that I have found is Jesus Christ? And then sometimes we look at our own lives and we see, I'm not preaching that very well. I'm like Peter more often than not. I'm denying Jesus. I'm denying that I know him. And so we come to these things and we're tempted to disbelieve that Jesus has really revealed the truth. Or we look at the divisions of Christians in the world, 35,000 plus different Christian denominations. How can it possibly be that Jesus has revealed the truth openly and without restraint? But we need to see here Jesus himself. Jesus' open witness to the truth is the horizon of the gospel. He is the word become flesh through whom all things come into being. And as the word become flesh, he voluntarily allows his witness, this is critical, he voluntarily allows his witness to become vulnerable to all the same things that we experience in this life whenever we attempt to speak truth, to misunderstanding, to questioning, even to rejection. But when all is said and done, Jesus still stands there. And he still invites us to see him and to know him in his word, and he still goes unrefuted. The amazing thing about Jesus' life is that always he was pointing to the things that he said. And he expected the things that he said not merely to be information, but to actually do something. 
I mean, that's the incredible thing. Think back to his high priestly prayer. The thing that he prays to his father as he's considering the whole of his church, not just in that moment there with that band of disciples, <clears throat> but us too, all throughout the ages. And he says, I know that they are yours because I have delivered to them your word. Jesus' confidence in his word was unparalleled. It was unparalleled. He expected his word to do something. So when we are tempted to disbelieve, when we look at the divisions in Christianity, or when we see in our own confusion the mystery that still remains, do we go to Jesus to look to him and to hear from him, expecting that he will do something, and that confidence and, and, and fellowship in his presence will change us by degrees, that will become something different than we even expected? Or are we like Peter too often and simply saying, I don't know him? We'll see this in the immediate response of Jesus to those who question him at his trials, at his trial before the high priests. John tells us that the main motivating factor in the persecution of Jesus, of the priestly class, was their jealousy of him. And we see that here, don't we? This kangaroo court in the middle of the night, against all accepted practice, with no witnesses there. How does Jesus respond? He goes back to his word. He goes back to his word. And one of the officers of the temple courtyard cannot abide Jesus' confident witness to the open, open proclamation of the truth. And so he strikes Jesus. How dare you speak to the high priest in this way? Jesus had appealed to witnesses to his teaching, but they do not call those witnesses. And witnesses were required at a trial if it was to be just. So in this way, Jesus was also, in a subtle way, pointing out the unlawfulness of the proceedings. And their response is not repentance, but further malice. And Jesus' answer in verse 23 is again compelling in its confident majesty. If what he has said is wrong, it should be easy for the authorities assembled against him to prove it. And they should do so. It is not on Jesus to interrogate himself. It is not on Jesus to bring the charges against himself. That is on them. So if what he has spoken is wrong, then they should do so. They should bring witnesses, but they do not do so. And if what he has said is right, why do they strike him? Again, this is the gospel in miniature. The lack of response to Jesus' witness here is horrifically damning. Jesus goes unanswered. And, and this is a strange thing in John's gospel because he leaves it right there at the, at the cliff's edge, as it were. We don't know what happened after this. And, and so Jesus' response to them is, as it were, ringing in the air. And it rings down through the ages and it comes down even to us. If what he has said is right, why do we strike him? If, if what Jesus has said is wrong, let's bring our witnesses. That We heard this a little bit, didn't we, in our call to worship this morning. This is what God has been doing to his rebellious people from the very beginning. Whenever they would go away from the covenant, whenever they would forget his mercy and his love, whenever they would go to worship false idols, God would assemble them together and he would say, okay, let's hash this out. If there is life in the false witnesses, in the false gods that you have chosen, if there is life in the path that you have chosen, show it. But if not, why do you leave me? And so today for us, that question rings out. 
If we reject Jesus, if we say, well, Jesus, I'm not so sure that you have really revealed the way of salvation. I'm not so sure that you haven't, after all, kept it a secret. I will go my own way. Well, where will we run to? Our own selves? Look at Peter. He wasn't the man he thought he was. All these confident boasts and declarations. Peter, the disciple who seems to represent among all the disciples that confident running after Jesus, running into the thick of it. And in this moment, he finds out he's not half the man he thinks he is. Haven't we been there? After a situation, how could I have said that? After you've spoken a word to someone that you regret, how could I have done that? That's not just a, a covering up of something you're ashamed of. That's a real wrestling with who you really are. How could I have done that? We don't know ourselves. So if you refuse Jesus, if you say, well, Jesus, the truth is too hard in your view. It's not as as open and as public as you seem to think it is. Where will we go? To our own selves? We don't know ourselves. We don't know ourselves. So in this, in the response of Peter, in the denial of Peter, in the refusal of the high priest and his acolytes to hear Jesus, to give him a fair trial, we see our own tendency to disbelieve Jesus. And it's not ultimately rooted in the obscurity of his word, but because it exposes our sinfulness. How often does Jesus go simply unanswered in our lives? Jesus' open witness to the truth not only exposes our sinful disbelief, it also invites us to hear him in repentance. And this is the hopeful thing. His willing suffering for us, illustrated even at this trial, shows us that he has taken upon himself the consequences of our own disbelief so that it does not have to be final for us. And so in a sense, Jesus' trial has been taking place throughout his earthly ministry. This is just the culmination of it. His trial merely culminates in the confident declaration that there is nothing new that can be found out that Jesus has not already faithfully delivered to the world from his Father. And the critical point has therefore been reached. And the response is therefore demanded. Will we believe Jesus? Or striking against him, will we reject him? And in that way, Jesus is already, even here, acting the judge against his would-be judges. And so after letting us in on this scene at Jesus' trial, John returns to Peter in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. And again, someone recognizes him, and again, someone asks him, aren't you one of his disciples? And again, Peter denies it. And this happens a third time. A relative of Malchus, the, guy, the very guy whose who Peter had cut off his ear, he sees Peter, and he says, didn't I see you in the garden? You can imagine the heartbeat of Peter in that moment. And he denies it. And at once, a rooster crowed. And again, we see here something of the simplicity of John's account here. Many of the other gospel writers, Luke in particular, he points a little bit more to the poignancy of what's going on here. Because immediately after Peter denies Jesus his third time, Luke tells us Jesus looks over at his friend. We, I think, don't fully appreciate the suffering of Jesus in that moment. This betrayal would have stung Jesus in a way that few of us can probably imagine. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way. But living in the midst of sinners and suffering with them under the curse of sin and embarking ultimately 
on the ultimate cost he would pay for their salvation, Jesus' perfection did not make life easy for him. It made it horrifically hard. It exposed him to deeper suffering. The sadness a perfect man would feel at the betrayal of a friend he loves perfectly is deeper than we have yet a capacity to fully appreciate. And yet, Jesus has openly witnessed to the truth. This is not the end of Peter's story. Jesus has kept nothing hidden. And so, Peter denies Jesus. His accusers have no answer. The trial against him has been exposed as manifestly unjust. And yet, even still, Peter is not so committed to Jesus, not so committed to the truth as he once thought himself to be. In the moment of truth, Peter fails. And as I said, we need to consider here, soberly, do we do better? Here are some reasons to think that oftentimes in the moment of truth, we won't. Our commitment to the truth is probably the most brittle thing there really is in the world, apart from our union with Christ. Our resolutions soon go unkept. Our loves soon grow cold. Our promises are soon barely even noticed by us. How often do we consciously think of the promises that we've made and how our behavior either fits or doesn't fit with them? Besides this, we're all motivated reasoners, That is, our reasoning is influenced by motivations and goals other than the truth. We don't acknowledge that it is God who holds us up. We're confident in our own strength and powers. Our sin often reveals itself in our disbelief. And by the way, if you doubt that, you have merely to notice that you will find it difficult to live in terms of whatever belief system you find yourself in. Whatever belief system you adhere to, you will find it difficult to live in terms of that. Our our commitment to the truth is not the most powerful thing that we think it is. Our desire to be seen and to be heard and to be respected and loved and comfortable and safe and secure gives us powerful reason, sometimes overwhelming reason, to ascribe truth to flattery. And besides this, we see through a glass half darkly. Stephen Charnock points out, we talked about this at uh, one of the small groups earlier in the week, we've been but a moment on this world, even if we've been here from our perspective a long time. God says that a thousand years in his sight are like a day that has gone by, or even actually like a watch in the night, which is about three hours. I did the math earlier this week. That means that 33 years in God's sight that we live on this earth is about one second. So you have maybe three seconds in comparison with eternity in this world. What is the likelihood that in three seconds you will understand all mysteries, What is the likelihood that in three seconds you will become confident in your understanding of the world, confident enough even to live in the best way? Very unlikely. So our commitment to the truth is not as strong as we think it is. So here we learn an important lesson, both in Peter's denial and in Jesus' standing for the truth that is applicable to all of us. Jesus has to die for Peter before Peter will become an unflinching witness for the truth. Jesus has to die for us before we will know the truth and live in terms of it. And as for Peter, so for us. If we're not keeping in step with Jesus, if we do not share in his death and resurrection by faith, we will not ultimately be faithful witnesses to the truth in the moments when it counts. But if we live in Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, we will not only hold fast to him because he holds fast to us, but even our failures will be used by him as a powerful witness to his redemptive power and love. And so we go back to that wonderful testimony from that brother, Sadhu Sundar Singh. What is the better thing 
that we have found in Christianity. We won't live for very long in our reasoning only. We won't live for very long in being Reformed Christians who understand the mysteries of the Reformed faith. We won't live for very long in understanding the warp and woof of a particular liturgy. We won't live for very long if that is all that it is. We will only live. We will only be confident in the truth. We will only be confident truth-tellers if we see Jesus. What is the better thing that we have found in the gospel? Here's how Pastor Wang Yi, I mentioned Pastor Wang Yi last week. He's the pastor in China who's currently in prison. Here's how he helpfully describes this dynamic. He says, we must understand that the Lord is not calling heroes of the faith, that he is calling saints. Not victors, but failures. Not the mighty ones, but the incompetent. We must grow in the realization that the defining moment of our lives was Jesus' crucifixion, and we weren't there. The gospel is not a conduct record that we provide to the Lord. Instead, the gospel is the Son of God providing us with a perfect and sinless record. To be a Christian is to refuse to trust in your own works or personhood in any way. And the gospel allows for everyone's story to be retold. That is beautiful. In this way, the gospel allows for Peter's story to be retold. We'll get to it in a few weeks, but I just think it's amazing that we find Peter, after this episode, back in the upper room with the disciples. That's crazy. If anybody had reason to think, well, this is it for me, it was Peter. First, he cuts off that guy's ear, and then right after that, he denies Jesus three times. Who would have the, the right to think that he could go back to Jesus, back to the disciples? That was pretty awkward, I'm sure. Imagine if Judas had seen Peter in that moment. Wouldn't Judas have had a right to think to himself, at least I'm not as bad as that? What's the difference, though? Judas runs away from the throne of grace and hangs himself. Peter weeps and runs back. I'm sure for Peter, that was probably the hardest thing to do, to show back up with all the disciples, to walk back up to that upper room, to stand there as they're waiting. for the, They know not what. They didn't understand what Jesus had said, that he'd be raised to new life. They're just standing there, huddled together in fear. And there's Peter. I'm sure it was awkward. I'm sure it was the hardest thing he probably ever had to, to do, probably emotionally, just gut-wrenching, and yet he was there. Because the gospel allows for everyone's story to be retold, and ours too. So a question for us. What aspects of your life story so far do you struggle to believe can, can do you struggle to believe can be used by the Lord as a witness to redemption through Christ? And in what ways does the doubts sorry what ways does the open witness of Jesus encourage him to come encourage you to come to him with your struggles and doubts? Friends, run to the throne of grace. Because Jesus' open witness to the truth means that it is not hidden. The way of salvation is not a secret. It allows for everyone's story to be retold.